following program is from the Latin Pulse archives, so some of the news items included are no longer current. This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we have elections, democracy, and social change on our docket, plus some breaking news of sorts. The program will feature an in-depth interview looking ahead to this weekend's elections in Argentina, and we'll also have news about Cuba and its latest wave of economic reforms. But first, major decisions in Venezuela this week that put fair elections and free media at risk. Vanessa Jesus Gonzati is here with the details and this week's news highlights from around Latin America. This week, the Venezuelan Supreme Court disregarded the Inter-American Court of Human Rights decision to allow opposition leader Leopoldo López to run for office. The Comptroller General banned López, a former Caracas district mayor, from running for public office in 2008 because of corruption allegations. However, in September, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights ruled in López's favor when he appealed his case. He has never been formally prosecuted or convicted on allegations. Luis Manuel Espinosa, a former advisor of Leopoldo López, says the candidate still intends to run because the Inter-American Court's decision is legally binding. This gentleman's rights have been fully restored because they didn't find anything on him, and they would have always been so in all sensible countries in the world. Venezuela's Supreme Court says he is allowed to run, but that if he won, it is not assured that he could take office. Venezuela's telecommunications regulator, Conatel, fined the openly critical television network Globovisión. The institution says Globovisión has to pay 7% of its gross income for violating Venezuela's media laws during the coverage of confrontation in a prison near Caracas in June and July. The television network says it will appeal the fine that would otherwise make them go bankrupt. The fine adds up to $2 million. According to Conatel, the station violated the law by creating anxiety and instigating intolerance for political reasons. The latest polls show that Argentina's president, Cristina Fernández de Kirchner, is most likely to be re-elected during Sunday's election. According to Jacobe and Asociados, the president has the support of 53% of voters, while opposition challenger and governor Hermes Biner comes in second with almost 17%. Fernández has been in power for the past four years following her husband, who served in office from 2003 to 2007 and passed away last year. Argentina has been enjoying its longest period of democracy since a series of coups in the 1930s and one of its most sustained periods of economic growth. Cuba's dissident Laura Poyan died at 63 of a cardiorespiratory failure, a week after being hospitalized. The community gathered to mourn the loss of one of its most prominent leaders and founder of the Ladies in White. For years, Poyan made her home headquarters for planning protests against the communist regime. Poyan founded the group in 2003 with Berta Soler to press for the release of their husbands and more than 70 other activists from Cuban prisons. 
After that, the ladies in white continued to protest against the government, which calls the women traitors working for the United States. There was no mention of Poyan's death in Cuban state media. Students protest for changes in the education system in Santiago, Chile. Two marches approved by authorities converged in a demonstration in Chile's capital, and after small groups confronted the police, violence broke out. A group of students attacked a gas station and spread gasoline around. A few protesters also tried to set an empty bus on fire. Some student leaders condemn the violence and wonder who is really behind these activities. After months of protests, President Sebastián Piñera has denied the students' main demand that Chile provide free public education to all citizens. A week of heavy rains across Central America caused landslides, floods, and bridge collapses. At least 84 people have died, and nine are missing, authorities say. El Salvador and Nicaragua leaders declared natural disasters on Monday. The rains have affected about a quarter of a million people. I'm Vanessa Jesus Gonzari reporting for Latin Pulse. This week we have some breaking news. Today, Freedom House, the international organization focused on democracy and free speech, released its latest study on Cuba. The study calls the recent economic reforms in Cuba the most significant changes to the island since communism arrived in 1959. The study is based upon a poll of 190 Cubans conducted in Cuba during June in six of the island's provinces and focusing upon the economic liberalizations of the government of Raul Castro. Joining us to discuss the findings is the study's co-author, Daniel Kallengart. Welcome to Latin Pulse. Please tell us a bit more about the study and why the poll points to this major shift in public attitudes toward these economic reforms. Well, I should start out by saying that Freedom House has done a series of surveys in Cuba, and the most recent one was, or there's the one that we're releasing now, Previous to this, we had a, a field study done in December of last year. And the shift in attitudes between even the end of last year and the field study uh, fielded this June is really quite significant. And the general picture that emerged uh, 10 months ago was that people did not think that change was real. They had heard announcements. They didn't really see much changing. And they were very skeptical about even the idea of change. What we see now is that change is very real. Uh, four in five of those people that we surveyed said that they have seen changes taking place uh, uh, in recent months in Cuba. Uh, many point to the cuenta propistas, uh, the self-employed, and uh, I think it was about two-thirds of respondents uh, know someone who has uh, applied for and received a license, and they say they see these uh, street vendors on every corner. Um, and what's more significant is not just these changes in, uh, in, in small-scale private enterprise, uh, but it's really a change in attitudes that suddenly change is real and it is affecting how people think. So to just give a couple of examples, Please. one of the people interviewed uh, sells uh, food on the street and she's 
aspiring to setting up her own little restaurant so people can come in and sit at the table and she'd have a nice tablecloth. Um, there's another person that we interviewed who's an architect and she sees that these uh, licenses for what they call self-employment are provided for really unskilled jobs like selling on the street or hairdressers or the um, and she's asking why can't I get a license to be an architect to help build houses um, so she's looking forward to that so people are not talking as they did in the past about you know maybe there'll be reforms and if even if they are they might get rolled back People are talking as if this is here to stay, and we're looking for more. I, I want to go back to one of the major statements in the conclusion, that this is perhaps the most significant economic and, I guess, uh, socioeconomic shift in Cuba since the revolution. Um, that's a pretty bold statement. It is a significant change. I mean, people think back to the... Um, the period in the 90s when there was an opening and it, uh, it got rolled back. Our sense is that this is, this is here to stay. And partly it's from the attitudes that uh, Cubans are expressing in the surveys that they're looking forward. They're not even bringing up the concern that this might be rolled back. Uh, and also, the, you know, the context is different where the leaders are all um, in or near their 80s. And uh, when when Cubans talk about change now, they're not talking about if, they're talking about when. And they're saying, well, maybe we got to wait a few years for these old guys to go, but they're expecting it to happen. I should mention to our listeners um, just a, a technical point that uh, this week Daniel Kalingard is joining us from his office in Washington, D.C. He's not here in our studio. He's joining us via Skype. And and so some of the technical quality uh, may be a, a little different than, than what we're used to. Um, but in, in some ways, this is, a, this is a bit of a metaphor for what we're talking about in Cuba, that, that these technical changes are, are a little bit different than, than what we've heard in the past from the Cuban government through this special period. We've done a number of programs that have mentioned these Cuban economic changes and mentioned the mood on the island. And one of the things I think that's interesting about your poll is that there's a sense of optimism, and that's something new um, when we talk about Cuba. Very much so. Um, uh, you know, I used to joke in, when we did the previous polls and we would be designing them, and I'd almost wonder why should we do another poll on Cuba? What we're going to find out is nothing changes and everyone's depressed. And what we found in this most recent poll is is very different. Uh, just a couple of examples, about two-thirds of the respondents welcomed the reforms. Uh, and when we asked people, uh, do you think the country is is moving forward or is it stuck or is it moving backward? Uh, the percentage who said it is moving forward has increased from 15% in the last poll to 41% this poll. Now, of course, that means that most Cubans still think the country is stuck, but just the, the big leap in, in optimism is really quite substantial. And what's more is then when we, when we ask people, what do you think will happen in the next 12 months? Are your economic conditions going to get better? 
we see uh, quite a significant number expecting things to get better. And this also goes to your earlier question, why this is a, a change that it, it's here to stay because people expect more. Um, so it both means that if, if the reforms don't deliver, it's likely that Cubans are, are going to, to push for deeper changes. We've done some reporting on this program in the recent past about the fact that Cubans are now going to be able to sell automobiles privately, something that they weren't able to do before, and that uh, real estate sales are, are down the pike. So those sorts of changes um, are coming. And, and I'm wondering, is this sort of change going to, going to spur some of the Cuban populace to ask for even more change, not necessarily economic changes? Isn't there a part of the study that talks about other changes that Cubans would like to see? Exactly. We see that while this optimism is growing and expectations are rising, we also see more interest and demand for personal freedoms. So, for instance, we've asked in the past, what is the reform that you would most like to see? And in the past, most of the answers we got had to do with economic reform, had to do with improving living conditions. In this survey, the most frequent answer had to do with freedom of expression, freedom to travel, basically civil liberties. I, I want to ask you a little bit about how you conduct a poll in Cuba, an authoritarian state. Um, 190 interviews, I think, is actually significant in that particular climate. Some people might say that's a fairly small sample size. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you conduct a poll like this and, and how accurate you think it is. Well, I should, I should say straight off that this is not a scientific sample. So uh, we're, we were operating under very significant constraints, as you said, and uh, what it does is it provides the best information we can get under the circumstances. Uh, the other challenge is that we can't do it openly and, and re openly record and ask these questions. So it's more sort of conversational interviews. Uh, the questions that are included in the study, and incidentally, this, the full study is posted on the Freedom House website. I'd like to ask you your personal opinion, um, perhaps built upon what you've written about in this particular study, which is where does Cuba go from here? Does this mean that we're going to see some of those reforms that people are asking for, uh, freedom of movement, freedom of speech, or are you hopeful about that? Personally, I am. I, I, I think there's a real concern that um, it might not change as much and as quickly as we would like. I mean, I, my guess is that the Cuban government wants to create a Chinese model where you have private enterprise, but politically it remains as repressive as it is now. Um, I think there's also a risk that even if there is some political change, uh, that it won't be a full move to democracy because, you know, there's still a lot of power, including money and resources within a ruling clique. Um, so you could have, you know, a different kind of model that's sort of a crony capitalist model. But I, I really get the sense that um, there, that we're starting to see more demand for individual freedom. And that may start to um, open up 
consideration of even political change. And and the reason is this, that um, in in previous surveys, we really got the sense that people had didn't see that they had much control over their destiny. You know, they were so dependent on the state. And, you know, if when you ask them about, you know, what would you like to see? What do you want to change? They were just very passive. With the introduction of the, the, the private market or really the expansion of the private market, people are just talking differently. They're talking as people who, at least in an economic sphere, can make a difference. They're saying, you know, if I work hard, I can do better. And they're talking about property and saying, you know, if something is yours, you take care of it. And, and this is also happening at a time when people are, are expressing more interest in uh, free speech and, and being able to travel. And the travel is not necessarily you know, I want to emigrate, I want to get out of here. No, they want to see other parts of the world. And sometimes they want to go work in another country for a few years and earn and then bring the money back. But, you know, they're thinking more as individuals and more as people who have some uh, influence, if not control, over their personal destiny. Daniel Kalengard of Freedom House, thank you very much for joining us on Latin Pulse via Skype today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. A restless energy blows across the globe. The desire for human rights. Yet every day, people are tortured, imprisoned, executed, or disappeared. Simply for their identity or their beliefs. That's why Amnesty International speaks out. To protect people's basic human rights. To change the sounds of suffering. To the sounds of freedom. Call 1-800-AMNESTY. It's your human right. 1-800-AMNESTY. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Up next, we have excerpts from a pre-recorded interview with Andres Serbin of Buenos Aires. Serbin is a noted anthropologist and political scientist who's retired from his position at Central University in Venezuela and is now back home in Argentina. There he runs CRIES, a network of 70 non-governmental organizations and university research centers throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. He visited Washington, D.C. recently as part of a study on Latin American integration and the decline of U.S. power throughout the hemisphere. And that's when we found time for an interview in our studio. The decline of U.S. influence in Latin America has been something we've been dealing with on this program for several weeks. And my question, I guess, off the bat is, is this something new? Is this transition to a different sort of Latin American integration and relationship with the United States that we've seen in the past? Or is this just the cycle of the U.S. moving away from Latin America as it tends well, to do? Well, I, I think it's a combination of both. Uh, what is happening is that uh, increasingly the South American countries particularly are uh, uh, developing uh, more autonomy from the United States and the hemispheric system. And at the same time, uh, promoting new forms of integration on first on a South American level and then on a Latin American level. And this is the traditional tension between two visions about the integration in, in the hemisphere. One is the Pan-American vision, uh, which includes, of course, the United States particularly and Canada. And uh, the other one is a more Latin American approach. Some can call them can call it uh, Bolivarian, 
in, in terms of the thinking of Bolivar, not necessarily in terms of what's going on now in Venezuela. So uh, it happens that the, for the last 10 years, there had been a proliferation in, of new forum, of uh, political forum in, in, in Latin America that created the conditions for the emergence of some new forms of integration. One of them is UNASUR, the Union of South American Countries, which started in 2008 and which has a very successful record in terms of solving and settling disputes within the region. And in this regard, it's becoming a sort of competition with the Organization of American States, which responds to this vision of the Pan-American Hemisphere. And what is the vision of, of this new, I guess, multi-state organization, if we were, if we were going to to characterize it. Is, it? is it the new Bolivarian vision of Venezuela? Is it uh, the vision of Brazil? Is it the vision of the Southern Cone from Argentina and Chile? Or is it uh, truly a mix? Well, first of all, is the building of, I wouldn't say a new identity, but a South American identity as part of a new community, which is South America. And of course, in the process of building this new identity and, and promoting this new process of integration, there is a competition between, between two leaderships. One is, of course, Venezuela with its projects, uh, the uh, Bolivarian Alternative for the Americas, ALBA, uh, which includes not only South American countries, but also Caribbean and Central American countries and the vision of the of Brazil based mostly on the experience of Mercosur uh, of integrating the South American countries and one community and switching maybe the agenda from the traditional view of integration as related to free trade and liberalization uh, to a more political approach where there are well, we, we consider that there are three returns that are very important. First of all, the return to the state. The state is uh, playing a, a more important role than the market, for example. The second one is the return of politics. There is a lot of uh, meetings between the leaders and the presidents in the region trying to build consensus about different issues of the regional agenda. And thirdly, the return to the uh, a develop, development agenda, which is associated also with social policies. So it, it, this axis of power between Brazil or between Venezuela, none of the other countries seem to have an equal standing then in this new vision. The point is that uh, uh, Brazil is still hesitant between choosing to be a global player and basing this uh, global projection on a regional platform and for that end uh, building and strengthening the process in South America and uh, a vision by Chavez which uh, particularly by Chavez I wouldn't say by Venezuela of the community of uh, uh, Latin American na nations uh, which has a more ideological orientation and has to do mostly with the influence within the region. Since you brought up politics, um, I, we would be remiss because the Argentine elections are, are just on our doorstep. 
Can can we talk a little bit about the political situation in in Argentina since your roots are in Argentina? Well, uh, what is happening in Argentina is that we have a unusual long period of stability, political and economic stability after the crisis in 2001-2002. And there is a, an economic growth uh, so the people feels that the economy is doing well. And as a result, uh, the president the com- probably is going to win the next election, as was showed by the primaries that we have two months ago. She got about 50% of the vote, and eventually, probably, she's going to have some 2% more in, in the elections. Uh, on one side, there is the success story of the government for the last years and the support of the Peronist movement, which is very heterogeneous, but is very important for uh, the process of election. And, and I think for our audience, we have to make sure that they understand that, that the current government, government in Argentina is a Peronist government. It's a Peronist government, yeah. And then the, the second uh, uh, important factor is that you have a very fragmented opposition. Uh, part of this opposition came from the Peronist movement, and it's in, an op- in opposition to the president and uh, their uh, project as such, uh, her project as such. So uh, what is emerging is a new alternative, uh, the Socialist Party, which happens to have a very successful uh, government in the province of Santa Fe, is one of the richest provinces in, 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 in Argentina. and the, the most interesting thing is that is the only government that in the re- recent 30 years has no complaints of abuse of power or of corruption. So uh, it's not going to be a competition in the next election to the president, but it's an, an emerging important force, this of the Socialist Party, which is mostly a social democratic party. And, and would you put them on the political political scale farther to the left than the Peronists currently? Not necessarily. This is a moderate left uh, that has a very good experience of managing uh, a province and uh, probably can be in office with some degree of, of, of success. But uh, there is a s- another kind of consideration in this case, particularly uh, the political considerations. Sometimes uh, the stability of a government doesn't depend of their ability to deliver the goods, but of their ability to negotiate with some political factors that are very important in Argentina. One of them, for example, are the trade unions. And is this one of the reasons why the current president is going to win this election? Because people are confident in this type of stability that you pointed out? Uh, yes, I think that uh, uh, the president managed to establish some sort of um, uh, good, I, I wouldn't say a good relationship, but some sort of relationship. Because with she's had some problems with strikes that have shut down parts of the country at times. Uh, yeah, but that's term. part of uh, the process of uh, uh, struggling between the government and the main trade union uh, confederation. So anything that an American audience should know 
about this predicted outcome? Does this just mean more stability and more recovery from the economic crisis in, in Latin America for Argentina? Or is there another prediction from you? No, I would say that in the, in the short term, we can predict more stability. And uh, all depends on how the economy is going to evolve, particularly taking into account the international financial crisis and the possibility that, well, Argentina, uh, the most important export, of course, are commodities, and particularly to China, uh, and also some uh, products uh, more uh, manufactured to Brazil. Well, we'll see next week if the prediction comes true. Mm -hmm. uh, other people have been on the, this program and have predicted the same, that uh, President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner will be the winner. No. Um, and, um, and then we'll see what happens afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Thank you very much for joining us today, Andre Servin, um, a political scientist uh, from both Argentina yeah. and Venezuela. Thank you. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. And to see the Latin Pulse archives on video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse. Also, all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. And if you'd like to write us with your reactions to our program, please send us an email. You can find us at latinpulse.gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word, dot gmx.com. Thank you for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For associate producer Vanessa Jesus Gonzati and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escúchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2011, Las Rocas Productions.